Good morning, church. Uh, the teaching text for the day is Matthew 6, 9-15. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. Lord, please let your words comfort us and know that you hear us and that we are your children and we can call out to you. And may this model for a prayer guide our prayers as a church and us individually so that we may know you better. Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. If I'm echoing really bad and the whole service has been echoing really bad, I want to let you know your computer is broken. It's definitely not us. There's definitely not a broadcast problem. You need to throw away that computer and go spend thousands at Best Buy uh, today. We have no idea why it's being super echoey right now, but that evidently is the case. So that just stinks. Um, in the process of uh, the last couple of months in launching the church, we've developed a couple unofficial like mottos for the church. One of them is Cornerstone Tulsa, it almost works. Another one that we've come up with is Cornerstone Tulsa, we're slow, but we get there. So if, uh, if your audio just stinks, I'm really sorry. We've done everything to figure it out, and it just hasn't worked really great today. So uh, it, the podcast will be up later if you're like, I cannot listen to him for half an hour with this echo. The podcast will be up later, and that quality is going to be better. So we'll just, uh, we'll just refer back to that later. Okay. Well, that really threw me off. So let's start over, okay? <laughs> Shall we? Are we good to start over, everybody? Okay. Um, I want to let you guys know, as, as we're kind of um, getting back into things, that we've made a strategic decision as a church, um, something that uh, we're going to do. With, with all the tension and the anxiety and the tribalism going on in our country and our world, and as the age-old struggle of, of race and power is waging on, with this like growing sense of hopelessness and despair about the human condition, uh, we've decided to start holding uh, these twice-weekly uh, protests every single week uh, into the foreseeable future. These twice-weekly protests every single week uh, into the foreseeable future. And the purpose of these protests is to actively platform our concerns about the world. And there are many of them, you know, from uh, the brokenness that we see in human hearts that leads to emotional and, and relational and political and physical violence, uh, for the, the hatred and the bigotry and the racism that's manifested in interpersonal relationships, but also in power structures that are in our, our society, power structures and the mistrust that exists, the deception, the rivalry that exists between friends and neighbors, for those situations of, of desperation that prompt theft and crime, for those people in our world who are addicted to substances that are just ravaging their body and, and ravaging uh, their families, for the plight of the homeless who live on our city streets, for the orphan and for the child who's in foster care, for the neglected elderly, for the countless thousands in our country who are incarcerated, Oklahoma has really, really high rates of incarceration, especially female incarceration. 
Now, for the millions who struggle with anxiety and depression, for the lonely and for the sick and for the brokenhearted and for the hopeless, we're going to begin holding uh, these twice-weekly protests. We're holding these protests to name and to lament the pain of the world and the anguish that's in all of our hearts and to habitually and systematically lament and name these things and present them to the Lord saying, would you do something about this? Would you bear your arm and move in power and show up in our world those places of our greatest vulnerability and brokenness? And it's never going to make the evening news. It's, it's, it's rarely going to make any, anywhere on the internet except for our own social media. And it often doesn't look all that ground-shaking. But when our church gets together at 7 a.m. on Tuesday mornings and at noon on Thursday, we're doing exactly this. We're doing a peaceful protest, standing in defiance against the state of the world as it is. And this is even what we do on Sunday mornings. We're saying there's a better and a more true narrative that defines how we're going to operate and how the world will operate when Christ returns. We're standing in this place of mediation pulling with God to move in power in our world at the places of its greatest brokenness. We're standing in protest and defiance against the powers and the principalities of evil that's manifested in human hearts and human institutions and choices, and we're actively inviting the reign of God to come to bear in our world and in Tulsa as it is in heaven. And prayer is not just meant to be this like opiate for the masses, This thing that makes us feel better about ourselves, but we're actually not doing anything. Something that's that's, uh, thought to be like like nice to do, but ultimately impotent and ineffectual. It's the way that church people pat themselves on the back. That's not how we conceive what we're doing when we call one another to prayer. Prayer is one of the primary, but not the sole, arenas in which we stand in non-cooperation and revolt against the world as it is right now. Prayer is is one of the primary, though not the sole, arenas in which we join God in advancing his restorative, redemptive, reparative mission in the world, on the streets, in the neighborhoods of our cities, in the country that we call home, and even the nations of the world. Prayer is meant to be the starting point for all kingdom incursions. It's the fire and the fuse and the fuel for everything we do in our city and around the world to proclaim the name of Jesus and to rally for justice and peace. It's it's the starting point for everything. It's the way we collectively, as the people of God, aim to remain in Jesus as he remains in us. It's the source of our fruitfulness. It's the way that we're learning. One of the primary ways we're learning to be well. Jesus said, do you want to be well? Yes, Prayer is and must be the context in which the Spirit speaks to Christ's church and prompts us to take redemptive action and unified action that God's name may be honored in all of the world. And I would just say really candidly, we are not now, but Cornerstone is going to be a praying church. And I believe that in ways that exceed our present experience, we're going to see God move in power and bear his arm as we lean in together toward becoming a people of prayer. We're going to see the Spirit of God do more than we could ask or imagine, but this will not happen apart from the collaborative and the cooperative work we do with God 
in prayer. So I want to invite you to come or to join us online Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. and Thursdays at noon. We just relaunched this uh, this week. We're going every other pew. You, there's plenty of space for you to come. We are wearing masks, but it's a time for us to come and protest the world as it is and to ask God with passion, ask God to come and to heal our world, to reshape us by the Holy Spirit. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on prayer. We've been paying attention to this theme as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is an eight-month journey for us, and Jesus notably spends a good chunk of the real estate of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 on the topic of prayer and, and how we pray. And we started talking with a theme of secret prayer. Jesus was speaking against those people who pray with a motivation of being seen. He says to pray secretly. Last week we said uh, authentic prayer is not supposed to be performance art. We don't pray in order to impress other people. And if we do, with our goal being to impress other people, we can anticipate that God, aware that we're not trying to reach him, but to reach other people, is not going to take our call. And for many of us, uh, we don't pray at all for one reason or another. Uh, It could be that we don't know how to pray, which is just a matter of, of ignorance or inexperience. Uh, It could be that we don't think it's going to do anything, which is a faith issue. We don't think that prayer is actually all that effectual. It could be that we're making it too hard. We're just overthinking it. We've read too many books, but we've not done enough practice. Or maybe we've been let down in the past. And so a couple of weeks ago, I gave a tool for us to begin asking God to give us the faith to pray. called it 929 Prayer. Uh, Matthew 929, Jesus said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And so at 9.29 a.m. and p.m., we're praying, Lord, would you just increase our faith? In Mark 9.29, Jesus is casting a demon out of a person. He said, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. So Lord, would you increase our resolve? Help us to lean into this kind of prayer so that we can persevere. And then there's Luke 9.29. Luke 9.29, where Jesus was being transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And so we pray, Lord, would you transform us in prayer? Increase our faith, increase our resolve, and transform us in prayer. And if you're a person who, for whatever reason, like you don't pray, this is a great way uh, just to get started. Set your alarm for 9.29 and pray these verses back to the Lord. Last week we talked about a simple prayer, just like keeping it really, really basic. Simple prayer is ordinary people bringing their ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate Father. It's like we're just venting. We're just letting out in a simple and unpoetic kind of way the things that are on our hearts, confident that God hears us and and He cares. Simple prayer is candid. It's not poetic. It's not judgmental. We're not too harsh on ourselves when we're venting to the Lord. We assume that God cares. When we pray in this way, it, it, is, it reveals just how fragile we are and how, how broken we are. And today, having talked about uh, secret prayer and simple prayer, today we're going to look at the theme of, of kingdom prayer. <clears throat> and I call this kingdom prayer because it's different than just naming our top of mind concerns. Kingdom prayer is not just presenting our felt needs to the Lord, but allowing the agenda of the kingdom of God to inform the way that we pray. And Jesus gives us this model for kingdom prayer in the Lord's Prayer. It's also called the Disciples' Prayer. Jesus said, this then is how you uh, should pray. 
Praying the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer keeps our prayers aligned with the missional, uh, the, the missional heartbeat of the kingdom of God. Paying attention to the work that Jesus is trying to do in the world through the kingdom that he's inaugurating. Uh, we take and we use this prayer not only in a word-for-word -word kind of way, as if there's like a special power or magic in using the words just in the way that Jesus did, but we use this prayer kind of like hangers in your closet on which we drape our own prayers. It gives us an organizational system uh, for like narrating our own desires to the Lord. We hang up these prayers on, on the hanger that Jesus has given us. Now, we should remember when we pray the Lord's Prayer in our personal lives that it's like we shouldn't think about these words as magic. Like it's okay if you, if you don't do it exactly the right way. It's more important to actually name your failures and to confess your sins than to just use the right words, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. We're using this as a way for us to pray authentically and pray aligned with the values of the kingdom. If we use the prayer to, to guide our authentic prayer, we're, we're, it requires a kind of mindfulness and presence to God, whereas if we're just repeating the prayers back verbatim, it only requires the ability to read or to memorize. I actually preached on this last fall when we were going through the year of the Bible. We made our way to Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, and I preached on the Lord's Prayer. And so if you want to, you can go back and you can listen to that sermon called uh, How to Pray, where I really go through the whole thing line for line in some detail. Uh, just briefly, I, I do want to touch on the prayer, but then I want to focus on the last two verses that actually follow uh, the prayer as Carter read it today. Uh, the prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, the word hallow is not one you use apart from a Harry Potter context, the deathly hallows, but to hallow something is to set it apart for, for sacred use, to honor it. We're, we're, we're giving honor and praise to the Lord as we begin this prayer. May your name be honored in all the world. It, the prayer begins with our Father, and that our reinforces that we come to the Father not, not as if we have a monopoly on his kingdom or his attention. Anytime we pray to the Father, we come in the context of our entire family that Jesus has won by shedding his blood on the cross. We're, we're cognizant of the whole family of God when we come into conversation with our Father. We begin with praise, with words of honor and respect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next clause says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. If that first clause was praise or honor, the second clause gets at the heart of intercession, which is leaning into our intimacy with God for the benefit of other people. And as we think about the world imaginatively through the lens of the Lord's Prayer, you know, we think about hallowed be your name. We imagine where are those places in our world where God's name is not being hallowed, not being honored, and where are we worse for it? We think about your kingdom come, your will be done. We go to those places where God's will is not being done, where there's not evidence in fullness that his kingdom is being established among us. You could go to places of war. I go to even just the family and paying attention to the brokenness within our families. You just need to turn on the news and you see the deep rivalry and enmity between people in our country and the struggle between race and power and the struggle between people of different ethnicities. We see tons of evidence in our world empirically where God's kingdom has not yet come in fullness. 
When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're naming those places where there's misalignment between God's ideal, God's vision for our world and the world as it is. And we're asking God to move and to bring to bear his kingdom in these places of vulnerability and brokenness. In a way of using this imaginatively, you could start in just the the, the smallest circle of your life. Where's there evidence in my heart or in my family or in my closest friendships that God's kingdom has not come in fullness? Where are there habits that lead to my own destruction? Where are there thought patterns that are causing me to implode on the inside? And God, would you bring your kingdom to bear in my thought life? Paul talks about this in Philippians. Finally, whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about that. Use other scriptures to inform, God, would you bring your kingdom to bear in my mind by helping me to think about what's true and noble and right and pure? Think of, pray these over your friends. Pray this over your street. Name your neighbors to the Lord over our church, over our city, over our country, over the nations of the world. Where is there evidence that his kingdom has not yet come in fullness and petitioning God? leaning into the intimacy that you have with him as a co-heir with Christ and saying, would you do something about this? Praying for the sake of others. The next clause says, give us today our daily bread, which reminds us of the imagery of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness uh, after being freed from slavery in Egypt. They don't have any supplies. They're, They're completely reliant on the Lord to bring this bread from heaven. And if it shows up today, they're good. And if it doesn't, they are up a creek without a paddle. And similarly, when we pray, we set our hopes on the Lord because it's the best thing, the only thing we've ultimately got going for us. And so we name in just a simple way, like we talked about simple prayer last week, Lord, here are the basics that I need. Here are the felt needs that I need for today. Not for tomorrow, but here's the little I need just to get through today. Would you help me with that? And this is probably like the the biggest topic of most of our prayer lives, but if you can picture like our prayer being in stereo, we've got this prayer turned up really loud, and the other speakers are much more quiet. The, The Lord's Prayer teaches us to keep this in greater balance. Praise, intercession, supplication, asking for things on our own behalf. As we go into the next phrase, it says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven um, our debtors. Things get a little more uncomfortable and costly. And this is not talking about like the car payment that you owe or the mortgage that you have on your house as much as it's talking about relational debts, brokenness within relationships with those uh, who you know. We start with the divine human relationship, the relationship with God, and we confess our sins and our screw-ups to him. And we name them as candidly and honestly as we can, not brushing past things, not justifying ourselves, but just naming them and asking for help. But the phrasing in in the Lord's Prayer is really interesting because it says, as we have also forgiven our debtors which presumes, as we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes, it presumes that we are actively extending to others the mercy that we expect from God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is confession. And then the final clause in the the Lord's Prayer as it comes to us in Matthew's Gospel is simply, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is this really specific kind of supplication. It's just, God, would you protect us from the bad stuff and from the hard seasons? 
because we know our own brokenness. We know our own fragility. We know how fickle our faith is. Would you just keep us from having to walk through the hard stuff of life, catastrophe and suffering? As Jesus gives us these these small number of verses, these simple prayers, he's modeling what he's already instructed, a way to pray secretly to your Father in heaven. In a way to pray simply to your Father in heaven who knows what you need before you ask. He begins the Lord's Prayer with this is how you should pray. There's praise and intercession and supplication and confession and just naming like our helplessness. Protect us from the really hard stuff because we are our weak little people. The Lord's Prayer gives us a a shape and a model for our our conversational life uh, with God. If you want to study this more, in Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, I think his writing on this is just the best out there. It's really brilliant, and I would, I would recommend that to you. The prayer is really, really good, but I want you to pay attention to those really pesky, uncomfortable two verses that follow the prayer. In verses 14 and 15 in Matthew chapter 6, it says, For if you forgive other people... When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people when they sin against you, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. I'm going to guess that when you were in the homecoming court at your high school, you did not cite this as your favorite Bible verse. I'm going to guess that you do not have these verses on a bumper sticker or on your Facebook profile. These are uncomfortable verses. And they, they, they make us look Jesus square in the face. Jesus who's extended the mercy to the world as it was mocking him and crucifying him says, look, we're going to be people of mercy in our family. If you do not forgive other people their sins and they sin against you, your father will not forgive you either. In this addendum, this will add on to his teaching on prayer. Jesus, Jesus is demonstrating that our prayer life with God is not just this, supposed to be this like esoteric spiritual thing that doesn't really honestly have anything to do with life in the real world. But it demonstrates that the stuff of our prayer life with God is directly connected with everything else that defines our existence. It has direct bearing on the stuff of our real life with other people, even the people who have wronged us and the people who hate us. There's a connection between how we pray and how we live. You can't pray, hallowed be your name, and dishonor God in the way that you live with integrity. You can't pray for his kingdom to come and then be utterly dispassionate or unconcerned or take no action when we see evidence that his kingdom has not arrived in fullness and take no action to bring healing to those places where his hand is not felt and his feeling, his healing is not yet fully experienced or known. In this follow-up, these two verses in 14 and 15, Jesus focuses on one specific point of application in the Lord's Prayer. It's the the logic behind the clause, forgive us our debts. According to Jesus, it just like, it doesn't work, it doesn't compute to ask God for pardon or for a fresh start if we're unwilling and resolved not to extend a fresh start and forgiveness to other people. And the stakes, according to Jesus, for for following through his teaching to the logical equivalent demonstrated by forgiving other people are really, really high. 
Because if we fail to take the teaching to its logical conclusion, if we fail to forgive other people when they wrong us, he says, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. But we mustn't think of this as a divine punishment. It's a punishment that we inflict on ourselves. When we withhold forgiveness from others, we're locking ourselves in a cage. Or I've heard my friend Nina say, it's like we're holding our breath. We're exercising the choice that's bringing punishment upon us. We bar ourselves from receiving this gift that God wants to give us. But by insisting on forgiving other people, showing to the people who have wronged us the same mercy that God has shown us, Jesus is promoting this culture of reconciliation. And he's looping back to the first word of the prayer that we utter, our. There's an inherently social component to this prayer because it puts us in the context of that person who wronged you. When we pray our, we can't block out the conflict in all of our other relationships. We're mindful of them because God is a God of reconciliation. He wants to bring unity. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Because of how God and Jesus has treated us, we can't look at anybody else the same. By praying our, he's he's giving us a bridge to conversation with the Father about the people with whom we have strained relationships. He's pulling the family back together and building bridges between us. And this is a really strong and important word for this cultural moment uh, that we find ourselves in as Americans. But I think it's more broadly true of just the world. This cultural moment is being defined by a merciless and unforgiving posture toward other people. A merciless and unforgiving posture. If you just need evidence, just look at how we talk to one another on social media. Look at the state of discourse in our country. Uh, many people talk about the, the, the new dynamic, which is called cancel culture. Cancel culture, which is we find out that someone, usually a celebrity, did something or said something or had a perspective, typically way back when, and it was offensive in the past, and you publicly shame them into the place where they can never work again. They did that one thing, a, a big theme, and I think rightly, right to be concerned about things like blackface, but that shows up 30 years ago. There's one picture of them from a college party where they did this. They're never going to work in this town again. Cancel culture is, is a very, very real dynamic that's going on in our world. We've seen it with tons of celebrities who making jokes or taking positions on stuff that's out of step with progressive cultural moral code. And the backlash is just unrelenting and merciless, even if it doesn't describe how a person currently sees or experiences the world. And for as much as people can blame the church for being judgmental, man, just get on the wrong side of cancel culture. But cancel culture is ultimately, and Christians need to know this, deeply out of step with the gospel. Cancel culture is, is unchristian because it makes no room either for sin or for redemption. Sin, sins are those things that we do that we know are less than our dignity and also less than God's best. But with cancel culture, there's no room for, for screw-ups and for slip-ups. 
Your sins in the view of cancel culture are not just brief departures or variations from your broader identity, which may be uh, going a different direction, but they become the totality of your story and your entire identity. You're universally racist, sexist, misogynistic, abusive, and therefore you should never work in this town again. You should never be given a second chance to speak and to influence other people. And for as shameless as Americans can be, cancel culture demonstrates that we are a shame-obsessed culture. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think it's really good when, when wrongs are outed. I think it's ultimately for our good. As Christians, we volunteer our wrongs being outed through confession. But I think it's good when Harvey Weinstein was caught. I think it's good that Bill Cosby was caught. I think it's good that people who were abused are now finding the courage to speak out about their experience. All of that, I think, is really, really good. But gosh, haven't all of us done things or said things or thought things that we hope to God will never make daylight? Wouldn't we be utterly embarrassed and ruined in this town if people knew everything that went through our brains? With cancel culture, there's, there's no room for redemption. There's no room for, for making it right. And people are so terrified of being canceled themselves that it's easier to blot out and just try to erase the offender than to appear to be a sympathizer to their offensive ways by suggesting they could rehabilitate and have a fresh start. All of this cancel culture is fueled by chronic anxiety, not by a virtuous drive for integrity. We're all petrified, so let's keep the camera on everyone else's screw-ups so they don't know about mine. And this deep, deep cynicism and this unwillingness to forgive is antithetical to the gospel, and it's in misalignment with the way that Jesus teaches us to pray and to relate to the world. The gospel teaches us that everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. In the divine cancel culture, we are all guilty of offenses that warrant our judgment. But the gospel also teaches us that everyone can be forgiven. Everyone can have a fresh start and be purified from that impurity if we'll confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we bring to light our own brokenness, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from those things that disqualify us. Cancel culture is ultimately coming for all of us because all of us are broken. But I think the future belongs to the forgivers because we may be the only ones left. The future belongs to those of us who will hold on to the hope that no one is so far gone that they can't be redeemed and rehabilitated and transformed by the love of Jesus. The logic of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us that what we pray, we practice. What we ask for, we work to enact in the world. And the grace that we call amazing, that we receive from the Lord, we're expected to pass on to other people. And while we ask God for forgiveness for those ways in which we've blown it, we also strive with the help of the Holy Spirit to extend that to other people. But by withholding second chances, participating in cancel culture, we're denying folks the opportunity to learn and to change. But we're also in the process denying ourselves the opportunity to witness a miracle and to see something beautiful. 
And we've all, in our church and in our families, we know people who have had a, a, a major transition in their lives when they came to trust in Jesus. I was thinking of, of someone that I grew up with just yesterday, and their family was wild and crazy, and God has transformed their story and utterly, like totally rewritten that family narrative. Cancel culture makes no space for transformation, but the love of God does. In Jesus, anyone can be transformed as they trust in Jesus. I hope at some point in the next couple of years to introduce you to my friend Michael, who was a neo-Nazi. He had hate tattoos all over his body, and God sent him an African-American parole officer, a woman who transformed his life through her kindness. It's a story of transformation and life change. No one is so far gone that they can't be transformed, that they have to be canceled forever. A great model of this comes to us in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus is a tax collector who could use political pressure and often physical violence as a way of intimidating people into giving him taxes that he would pay on to the Romans. And naturally, having that power, he would abuse it and gain more money for himself than was actually owed to his superiors. And in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to his town. He's a short guy, so he climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. And this is what the gospel tells us. When Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus had climbed in the tree, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. People are like sharpening their knives. Like Jesus is going to be the next victim of cancel culture. The next person that we're going to write off because look who he hangs out with. But rather than making Jesus worse, watch what happens to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Rather than Jesus getting worse by association, Zacchaeus gets better by proximity. In the presence of Jesus, a transformation has taken place. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." In meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus demonstrates this holistic salvation that has taken place in his life. He's not just had a heart change. He doesn't just have a different perspective. It manifested in his life. When the the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, John said to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, the stuff that you're going to be praying about when you're baptized demonstrated in the way that you live. And this is precisely what's happened with Zacchaeus. Yes, it starts with repentance, with changing his mind, having a new way of thinking, but it leads to reconciliation. Jesus places Zacchaeus back in the context of the family of Israel. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's welcoming him in. But Zacchaeus goes to this third place that we often don't think of, which is restitution. We're mindful of the wrongs and the harm that he's inflicted on the community. He takes steps to right the wrongs. 
to heal the harms, to like do reconstruction on the place where he's brought destruction. He says, in view of what I've done and in view of his mercy toward me, I'm going to pay back four times anyone that I've wronged. What God has done for us, we do for others, not just in nice thinking, but with the Spirit's help, striving to make right what we can and trust God with what we can't. What we're asking God to do, we're, we have a readiness to join Him in doing ourselves. In this moment of cancel culture, it's, it's really easy to think of people you could blame for everything wrong in the world. The politician or the political group that you hate. That group that view, like views others in a way that you find just reprehensible and evil. There are tons of ways, tons of opportunities to blame other people. But I think Jesus' teaching naturally turns the camera back on ourselves, not looking to others that we might cancel, but paying attention to the ways in which our behavior and our lack of good behavior is bringing harm to God's world. We could ask these questions as a way to reflect. In what ways are you withholding from others the generosity that God has extended to you? Ask the question, who do you hate? Who comes to mind? When you think about that person, are you extending to them the same generosity of spirit that God has extended to you? In what ways are you being withholding? In what ways, if you were to pay attention to this cancel culture language, in what ways are you being discipled by our cultural moments instead of being discipled by the way of Jesus? In what ways are your instincts being reprogrammed toward anger and reactiveness and cancel culture behaviors instead of the way of patience and forgiveness and reconciliation and reparation in the way of Jesus? In what ways are you being undiscipled by this moment and in what ways do you need to come home? From whom are you withholding forgiveness? Toward whom do you behave mercilessly? mercilessly of what is God inviting you to repent to change your mind if you were to just like scan like your network of relationships with whom do you need to reconcile or take steps toward reconciliation and I think a really important question that we rarely think of is there anything that God is inviting you to do to make restitution not only to change your mind not only to seek relationship but to aim with the power of the Holy Spirit, to undo the harm that you've caused. We do what we can, and we trust God with what we can't in that process. We can't pray our Father with, without being mindful of the other people who call him Dad too. In this moment, like I want you to be aware of the forces that are at work on us to undisciple us from the way of Jesus. I think that a ton of people in our world and even in our church are on the verge of a mental and emotional breakdown because you are giving all of your time and your energy to the noise and the anger and the vitriol of our cultural moment. And it's not without effect on our souls. Not as a way of escaping our cultural moment, but as, as a way of being able to engage in it as a disciple of Jesus. Some of you need to delete all of your social media apps because it is killing your soul. 
It is undiscipling you, and you instead return to this simple and this secret place of learning to pray the kingdom into your own life and into your family and into our world. Not to escape from the world, but for the sake of the world. You said, Our Father who art in heaven, may your name be honored. May the reign of God be established and may it be in our family, in our city, in our nation, in the nations of the world, just like it is in heaven. Give us today the stuff we need to get through today. And please forgive our screw-ups and give us the grace to forgive those who have screwed up and erred and those who have deliberately harmed us. Keep us from a season of, of testing Keep us from, from suffering. Keep us from persecution. Deliver us from the evil one. Guard us. And then in the centuries that followed after Jesus taught this, the church knew there's this doxology and this, this like a great sound of, of honor and worship that was missing. And they said, to thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Church, we want to be people who for the long haul are learning the way of Jesus. And today I want to invite you to pay attention to how you're being invited off course. And no matter where you land politically, the people in our city who follow Jesus are going to face a test this week in your reactiveness to those with whom you disagree politically as the president comes to town. And I want to urge you, be a Christian. I want to urge you to pray in the kingdom, to pray for those with whom you disagree, to pray for those whom you hate, and to pay attention to the ways in which your discipleships or ways in which your, your, your discipleship is being influenced by your political perspective or the news sources that you pay attention to. Instead, mute and turn down that volume so that you can hear more clearly the voice of Jesus.